0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. This is The Currency. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. We are broadcasting live on November 1st, 2020. We made it into November of 2020. We wrapped up Halloween yesterday. We're live. Today's topic, today's title is Crazy Train. Crazy Train. We're approaching the American election, and I was reminded of the of the great American bard. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne actually not American by the way it seems like every opening I choke and I make a mistake last time I, I referred to this as being Q3 it's Q4 uh, this time I referred to Ozzy Osbourne as the great American bard he is not American ladies and gentlemen he is uh, he's from England I believe a good old Ozzy um, but anyway, Ozzy Osborne said, I'm going off the rails on a crazy trade. And I just thought with the American election within hours, we've got our vote. Uh, the polls opening up officially on Tuesday. Of course, they've been open in many instances across the United States. People voting early, millions and millions of people kind of record numbers. But I feel like it's a crazy train. I feel like we're going off the rails on the crazy train here. And I thought that'd be a great uh, title for today's um, today's podcast. But yeah, welcome, welcome. I'm glad to have you guys along. If you're listening to the podcast after the fact, or if you're listening to audio only, I say this every time, you're probably getting sick and tired of it, but join us on the live stream if you've got some time on a Sunday afternoon. And who doesn't? Who doesn't? Nobody really. I mean, Sunday afternoons are premium. Uh, you're thinking about the encroaching work day the next day and you're probably feeling that small sense of dread that I don't want the weekend to be over. Well, come spend it with us. Have a little bit of fun here on the YouTubes with uh, me and the gang here uh, on Mike Gaston Live. Anyway, let's get into it. Uh, we're gonna just jump in. We got a few folks, a uh, few shout outs, folks in the audience. We got uh, George, we've got Pauline uh, Wein- Weinberger, we've got Doughboy Biscuit, we got the gang all here. George is asking a quick question. He's saying, Mike, as long as you don't use the wrong name of your wife, you'll be fine. That's the truth. Now, here, let me tell you a little scary thing. My wife's first name is Lydia. Lydia, Lydia, beautiful name, and uh, beautiful backstory in that name. If you if you know anything about uh, the New Testament, but Lydia, beautiful name, and um, I just love that name. It's unique, etc. And, and but here's the problem: I did date a few girls. I, I, I shouldn't say it. Well, yeah, I dated a few girls before I dated my wife, and we got married. And and the scary, <laughs> the scary thing is. In fact, I was actually engaged to somebody else before Lydia and I met and got engaged. I'd broken that engagement off. It's not like I, met, I dumped this other person for Lydia, but I uh, had been engaged to somebody for a, number of, uh, for a year or so. We broke it off, and, and uh, about a year later, I met Lydia. Anyway... The woman, the young woman that I was engaged to, her first name was Lori, also starts with an L. And uh, before Lori, I was dating a girl named Lisa. So I had this string of L's, and I ended up marrying someone with the first name with L. So you can imagine the first... Uh, <laughs> and, and Lydia and I didn't actually know each other that long. We met in October. She was traveling from South Africa in the United States. She was traveling, and we met her. I met in October... Uh, was over some friend's house for, for a Sunday afternoon lunch, and a bunch of people were there at this apartment, and Lydia, I met Lydia when she was there. That was October. We got married in May, you know, October to May, boom. Hardly, never even knew each other to let's get married. And then a year later, we had our first child, so we just dove in the deep end. But I can tell you, my friends, those first few months... Easily, I was terrified of saying the wrong name. I have to admit, I was a little worried that I might say the wrong name, and uh, not a good way to start off your marriage is to call your wife by a former girlfriend's name. But we, after you know, 28 plus years, we're coming up on 29 years. Holy smokes, 29 years! Uh, we have we have surmounted those potential challenges successfully. I, I never, I never slipped up. Imagine that, I never slipped up. With all the nonsense that comes out of my mouth, you 'd think at least once i'd choke, but i 'd have not choked and I think now at this stage, if I were she 'd just you know give me a good punch in the arm and and uh, we'd call and we'd move on so yeah, very grateful for Lydia she's a lovely lovely woman any 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 young girl that would give up uh the fatherland and family to come be my wife for almost 30 years is a saint ladies and gentlemen i know i know i seem like a marvelous wonderful person now you you see me here you hear my the dulcet tones of my voice and you think wow what a great guy mike gaston must be let me tell you folks uh i'm (laughs) not all that actually I, i don't think that you think i'm wonderful but just kind of fun to pretend hey Thanks for joining me today, guys. We're going to talk a little bit about Crazy Train. Let's take a look at a few more comments. Um, was talking in the last episode about maybe making T-shirts. And he's, uh, he, he, after the show, he texted me via... He messaged me via Twitter some designs he had. And so he's jumped on. He's just saying, I got two shirts. A design will be for me. I don't have the patience to sell shirts to everyone. I'm way too busy to be selling T-shirts to my fans. <laughs> However, if I see you in person and you want me to sign your own design T-shirt, I'll be happy to sign it for you. So Doughboy went ahead and designed himself a, a shirt, ordered a couple of them online, and uh, is now going to be walking around with his own merch in his hometown. Doughboy, I got to imagine that your uh, coworkers and family and friends will get a kick out of it at the least, right? I mean, that's, you said that your, your name, Doughboy Biscuit, comes from work... I think you have to report back to us and let us know what it was like when you wore that T-shirt the first day on the job. I think people get a kick out of it. Assuming you can, A, wear T-shirts on the job, and B, you're allowed to be around your coworkers. So let's jump into the uh, topics here. I want to start off uh, by recognizing a sad fact, and I think you guys probably know what I'm going to refer to, uh, and that is the passing of of Sean Connery, the actor Sean Connery. He died, he was uh, 90 years old, died in his sleep. Um, Really sad. And and the reason I say, look, I'm not one to jump on these, um, you know, a a, a personality, a famous person dies and everybody kind of jumps on the social medias and makes a big deal about it and um, talks about, oh, how, you know, this is horrible and this person was so important to me. Uh, I think sometimes people just like to get in on the, on the, um, the popular, you know, theme of the day. And I'm not trying to take anybody's, uh, sadness or mourning away from them. I'm not mourning for, uh, for Sean Connery. I never knew the man, you know, we were not, we were not, uh, besties. I never met him, never knew him, but I have to say he did loom large in my life and my imagination as a young kid. I was born in 1967, so you can imagine Sean Connery, uh, you know, the first, uh, actor to play James Bond. He's, he'll always be the original James Bond for me. In fact, um, you know, my kind of generation really identified with Piers Brosnan, 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 I don't know how you say his name, uh, as James Bond. And I, I never, I just could never get my mind around accepting Piers as James Brown. Now, now Piers, cool guy, all that kind of stuff. But, but for me, his face was always too fine featured. And when I look at Sean Connery, strong jaw, you know, just like a real man's man. Sean Connery, just a real man's man. He's got that great Scottish accent. A great, I, I saw a great meme the other day. It was a photograph of, of the Queen of England. <laughs> And somebody photoshopped it and they took they took the um, image, the painting, one of Leonardo da Vinci's paintings of God, maybe from the Sistine Chapel. I forget. But they took that image and they made it look as if God was shaving the queen. The queen had shaving cream on. It looked like God's hand was reaching out with a razor in it. And the, the queen was kind of reclined. And then the other side of the screen had Sean Connery saying, that's not what I said. And then you go through your mind and you go, God shave the queen. God shave the queen. And I just thought, okay, that's pretty clever. So I don't know if that joke works uh, audio only. Maybe you have to see it. But, but, you know, Sean Connery just loomed so large. He was a total man's man. And when Piers uh, Brosnan became the new Bond back in, the, I want to say it was the late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember exactly when it was. I just had a hard time. He just looked too pretty. He looked too pretty. His features were too fine. His hair was too perfect. He looked Hollywood to me. And uh, Sean Connery did not look Hollywood to me. I mean, he definitely was Hollywood. uh, Definitely, you know, an actor and and a respected actor. But um, just will always, for me, be the original James Bond. Now, I should have looked this up. There's a movie and there's a a photo that makes its way around Reddit and some of the other uh, image boards. Um, of Sean Connery in some really strange getup. It's almost—it almost looks like uh, S&M gear. It's like this kind of leather strapped. You know, it's really bizarre. looking. you know, some movie, some futuristic kind of dystopian movie. He's got like this bizarre pistol in his hand. That that's an image that will never go away. But you know, I want to pay him some respect. Now, Connery was born in 1930 in Edinburgh, in, um, Edinburgh, Scotland. A true Scotsman, true Scotsman. Joined the navy at the age of 16. Uh, joined the navy at the age of 16. This guy was a hitter, and uh, eventually had to leave the navy. At the age of nineteen, so he was in for about three years. He had um, uh, some type of uh, ulcers that caused issues for him; he couldn't stay in. But the thing about him, you know, he did a bunch of different jobs. And now, now before I get into his jobs, just real quick, his parents, Connor, you think like comes from aristocratic stock or it's a wealthy family. I mean, the way he carried himself, the elegance—he was so debonair. You'd think that this was a man of culture. His mother, uh, his mother was. Um, a cleaner. I mean, she was a cleaning woman and his father was a factory worker. Like he did not come from upper class. He did not come from the aristocracy. He did not come from even upper middle class or middle class. He came from working class stock in Edinburgh. So I'm sure he grew up kind of tough. Joins the Navy at 16, gets out of the Navy, becomes a lorry driver for a while. Those in the U.S., a lorry driver is uh, someone driving a truck. He's a truck driver now, he was a laborer. He did a little bit of uh, modeling as an artist model to make um, ends meet. He, he was even a coffin polisher as a young man. He had a job as a coffin polisher. He says on his, It says on his official site that in 1950, he was number three in the Mr. Universe contest. And I did a lot of working out. Now, that's a little bit disputed. Some people say, well, there's some record of him, 1953. He was kind of third in the junior something. I mean, there's some uh, dispute around that. But he, he, he attempted to, to win um, Mr. Universe. And uh, he was even offered uh, a position, uh, a paid soccer position with Man, Manchester United. He played some soccer. There was a scout that saw him and thought very athletic, was very impressed with him. They offered him 25 pounds sterling a week to play soccer. And I guess he, he declined it because he said, well, Jeepers, I knew that soccer players, and this is football over there, football players, he said, but we're talking soccer. Uh, they, their career is done at 30, and I was already 23 and making 25 pounds a week. I mean, where am I going? So he turned that down and went into acting. Um, and he said and that was like just miraculous, best decision I ever made because, of course, that exploded for him. Now, he did a lot of bit parts. He did some, you know, backup. I think his first opportunity was like in a play uh in in london uh, he had a bit part in the south pacific little touring acting group but but he you know was getting bigger and bigger parts and his first breakthrough part was uh playing james bond that was his first big role it, it's not like he'd done all these other roles they, they took a risk they said this guy is something six foot two guy how could you not look at sean cottery and think okay james bond this guy's got it and another thing that was really interesting as looking him up he got uh he, at some point when he was doing bit parts, he had some gang that was after him, like, like one of the roughest, toughest gangs. And I guess the story goes, and this is just Sean Connery, but the story goes that they tried to jump him once. I don't know if he was playing pool or he was somewhere, and they tried to jump him to take his jacket. And he, and he beat up a bunch of gang members. He, he beat them back. He's like, no, he was successful in defending himself, and they were not able to take his jacket. So then the word was out, like, we're going to teach this guy a lesson. And they were after him for a while and he got cornered like on a 15 foot balcony and, a, and some gang members attacked him and he grabbed one by the scruff of his neck and the other he grabbed by the bicep and he smashed their heads together. Like you wreck these guys. And, uh, and, and out of that, they just said, okay, respect. We're going to respect this guy. And uh, because they said that he's he's hard. This guy's a hard case. We're not going to mess with them. So imagine that. I mean, I don't know how much of this is true, how much is apocryphal. But uh, these stories about Sean Connery are are just great. And it's what you would expect from a guy like him. You know, a lot of times in in these actors, they have a certain look. But then when you look into their actual life, they're like a soy boy. You know, they're they're weak. And Connery was kind of like a man's man. I mean, he just had that kind of aura about him. A Navy guy, you know, go, go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with uh, gang members and uh, truck driver, coffin polisher. I mean, come on. This guy's a hitter. even had an opportunity to play for Manchester United for Pete's sake. So here we go. So this is the thing. Here's the lesson, I think, that we can learn from a guy like Sean Connery. Now, you're going to say, oh, the lesson is you got to hang in there. Connery did all these different things. He, he, he scrapped it out. He eventually got his big break. So if you have a dream, you got to hang in there. But that's not the lesson. I think the lesson that we can all take away is if you want to be successful in life, if you really want to get on that main stage, it really helps to be a 6 foot 2 all all male, all all guy, dashing, handsome Scotsman. That's that's the lesson that we can all take away today from from Sean Connery's life. Actually, what a what a great guy. What a great guy. He gave the world a lot of entertainment, a lot of great roles and uh, I think You know, he'll be missed. Interestingly, he he died in his sleep. I guess he was suffering from dementia, uh 90 years old, and and he was in the Caribbean. He was he was in the Caribbean. He had a home in the Caribbean when he passed away. So uh God rest his soul. We will miss you, rest in peace. Uh Sean Connery. Now moving on, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Rogan. You know, a while back, Joe Rogan got this big hundred million dollar deal to move over to Spotify, move his podcast to Joe Rogan Experience, one of the most successful podcasts uh, ever, ever. And it's huge, as you know. If you don't know about the Joe Rogan podcast, then, I don't know, you're living under a rock or something. And, um, oh, I got to back up. And I know for the listeners this can be frustrating sometimes that I miss this. George said Zardoz, Z-A-R-D-O-Z, Zardoz is the Sean Connery movie You were talking about, yeah, the Zardoz movie, that was just bizarre. If you have a moment, you know, look it up. Just look up Sean Connery and Zardoz, and you will know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, It looks like it was from the early 70s. Like, it's just kind of a bizarre, strange piece, we'll just say. We'll just leave it at that. But anyway, moving on to Joe Rogan. So Joe Rogan uh, joined Spotify. Now, one of the reasons I think that Joe wanted to join Spotify is he wanted freedom. He wanted the artistic freedom. Uh, so he made a deal with Spotify to, to move his podcast exclusively onto the Spotify platform. And he's been in the process of doing that. Like he said, Hey, look, it's not going to happen automatically, but I'm going to jump over to Spotify. And over time, my content is going to become more and more, uh, exclusive to Spotify. Now, Spotify has been wanting to get into all kinds of media and they've been putting together things like radio programs. If you look on your spot, if you're a Spotify subscriber, like I am, you will see that they have a morning show that covers some news, a little bit of music, a little bit of uh, local interest kind of, not local, but just uh, interest stories. But they're trying to, it's like a morning commute show, if you will. They're trying to put together different kinds of content to capture more and more audience. And it's a smart move. You know, they're competing with folks like Apple. They're competing with folks like Amazon. I mean, they're hitting with the big boys. And Spotify is huge. I'm a premium. I've been a premium subscriber to Spotify for I don't even know how many years, like almost at the beginning. I think I'm paying like nine bucks a month. And they've got millions and millions and millions of users. I mean, they're making a ton of money over there. They want, you know, they've been making a move to get into podcasting pretty aggressively. Uh, This podcast, the currencies on Spotify, you know, we brokered a huge deal with them. Uh, to get the podcast onto the Spotify uh, platform. They came begging. They're like, Mike, we need you in our, in our stable. I don't think this platform can work without you. And I just, my heart went out to him. I just said, you know, I'm going to help these guys out. So I threw them a bone and they write me a check every, every month and it's all good. And if you believe that, I have a bridge I'd like to sell you in Brooklyn. The podcast is on Spotify though. We have a pretty good uh, listenership on Spotify, but uh, Joe Rogan moved his podcast over to Spotify, Spotify chased him. And reportedly, it's like a $100 million deal. Now, Rogan's argument was, look, I, you know, I'm putting this stuff up on YouTube, YouTube's getting kind of touchy around certain kinds of topics. My whole thing is just having all kinds of guests on all different stripes, different beliefs, different orientations, different everything, He just has different people on there. And Joe's not judging anybody. He's not there to, to prove any points. He'll get into stuff. He'll get political. He'll get religious and so on. But, but he just wants to hash out stuff. He'll have people that believe in, you know, space aliens have seeded Earth and we're all descendants of aliens. He's got other people on there that are, you know, kind of uh, conspiracy theorists and everything in between. And he's got, he's got your stable people, too, you know, book authors and comedians and so on. Are comedians stable? I don't think comedians are stable. But Rogan has built his career on being able to just have all kinds of people on and just talk. And, and so Spotify pr- said, look, come on, no holds barred. You do what you want to do. We want you on our platform. We will protect you. You can have anybody on. You can talk about any topic you want to. And then Joe's like, hey, look, this is great. I can make a ton of money and I can have the, the f- peace of mind, the freedom to just start doing my thing. And not worry about maybe YouTube shutting me down, YouTube censoring me, getting strikes against my channel, other platforms pulling the plug because somebody's controversial. So a while back, uh, Joe did a couple podcasts and and the Spotify, some members of the Spotify staff started screaming uncle. They're like, hey, look, this is bigoted. This is, you you know, racist. And, you know, they just got on Joe saying like, he's not the kind of person we want. And, and it was looking like all of a sudden Spotify was going to kind of renege on what they'd promised Joe. And then eventually Spotify leadership said, no, we're not doing that. Well, fast forward to today, and I thought that was a done deal. I thought, okay, great. They've kind of closed that loop. Joe can get on with it. Uh, they've silenced those employees or they've just kind of told them, hey, look, uh, look at your paycheck. Do you like your paycheck? Because if you like it, then leave Joe alone because he's how we make the paycheck around here. But Joe had Alex Jones, Alex Jones. Alex Jones, he of the they're turning the frogs gay infamy. Alex Jones, the, uh, the uh, conspiracy uh, theorist, the right wing rabble rouser who got kicked off of all the platforms uh, at least a year or two ago. I mean, essentially, Apple, YouTube, they all got together and just said, yeah, we're just going to shut Alex Jones down. And it was a little, it had a little bit of a chilling effect. I mean, even if you didn't like Alex Jones, I've never been a big Alex Jones fan, I'd laugh. Like I respect I respect Alex Jones as a personality, meaning he's built an empire. He's built this huge fan base around this bizarro uh personality. And that's, you know, that's the shtick. I mean, all these folks, uh whether you're Barack Obama. Alex Jones, Joe Rogan, they're all bringing a different personality to the table, Donald Trump. And that personality, that, that public figure that they put out there either draws people to them or repels them. Uh, and Alex Jones built a really successful career out I being mean, this kind of nut job, right wing conspiracy theory goofball. And, um, and, and And so the tech giants got together and essentially shut them down. In fact, I'm just put a comment up here real quick. Pauline Weinberger says the Alex Jones saga was a hit job. Yeah, I mean, totally. If you if folks remember, uh, all of a sudden out of nowhere, Alex Jones just got singled out and shut down. He got silenced. He got deplatformed. And I don't remember if this got into it as well. But even was it were some of the financial services getting in on the, on the action? I mean, that's that's been kind of a theme lately. Um, So, you know, Alex Jones and all the people that were on the Alex Jones network kind of got shut down and they've had to kind of work to find other ways to get their content out there. So fast forward to today and Rogan has Alex Jones on his show. Now think about about it. Who's going to drive numbers to your channel? Let's say you're on Spotify. Let's say you're on YouTube. Like if I'm sitting here, I've got this little... So I've got two channels. I've got my main channel, which is just over 11,000 subscribers. And then I've got this live stream channel that we do the currency and sometimes I'll do other stuff on. And that's like, I think we're at like, I don't know, 71 subscribers. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Like and subscribe. But it's a small channel imagine if i could get a guy like alex jones on my channel could you imagine what that would do for this channel could you imagine having somebody so controversial so bombastic so out there on the channel i mean joe had kanye on recently i mean he's had some interesting guests now my buddy uh skb uh sierra kilo bravo uh that's his youtube channel handle uh his name is shane he told me i said, "Hey." He, he's like, I'm jumping in. So he lives in Australia. I was busy working, whatever. He says, I'm listening. I'm just firing up the... Uh, he lives in the future. He's firing up the uh, podcast with Kanye. I'm like, you got to tell me how it is because I want to listen to it, but I don't want to waste my time if it's nuts. And he's like, yeah, after 60 minutes, he had to bounce. which is Kanye was off the wall. So, you know, but when you get names like that in, you drive traffic. It's, it, you're not going to grow a podcast... And you're not going to sustain it, and you're not going to hit the kind of numbers that Joe needs to hit. Having boring people on, you got to have people that are controversial on. That's what makes it interesting. People want to hear guys like Alex Jones. You're not giving Alex Jones a platform. Give me a break. You're, that's just assuming that everybody's an idiot. Oh, I listen to Alex Jones, and I get brainwashed by him. Give me a break. It's a spectacle. People want the spectacle, and Joe's great at that. He brings the spectacle it's either low-key where he's got some of his comedian buddies and they'll talk about stories. He might have UFC fighters, boxers on that talk about stories, famous athletes, and then and then some crazy folks. And it's fun. And Joe's able to hang with them. You know, he had Elon Musk. That was a spectacle. It wasn't just Elon talking tech. I mean, they lit, they lit up a doobie together. That's a spectacle. People want the spectacle. And so now Spotify, again, the employees are throwing a bit of a hissy fit. They're like they're outraged that that Joe would give um, Alex Jones a platform. Now, the Spotify executives are pushing back and saying, no, we're going to cover Joe. But I wonder how much longer they're going to be able to protect Joe. You know, at what point do this, the, the social justice warriors win the, win the fight? Now, I think this is important. I think that this is an important thing. I think Spotify has to hold the line. If Spotify doesn't hold the line, it's like a child that throws a temper tantrum. When your child throws a tantrum, what do you do? And for those of you that don't have children, maybe you have a pet. If your pet is misbehaving, what do you do? Do you give the pet whatever it wants to silence it? Or do you resist the pet until it figures out or the child until it figures out that it's not in charge, that throwing a fit, slamming your fists on the table, screaming, crying, running around, yelling or barking or whatever your pet is doing or your child is doing isn't getting any results? You see, if you allow the child and their temper tantrum to drive your behavior, then they know that they're in charge. They know that their bad behavior is what controls things. And Spotify and their leadership need to hold the line right now. They need to hold the line because if they capitulate, if they allow the smaller voices in that company, the loud, the loud voices, but the smaller voices, the inconsequential people, and I'm sorry, if you're down in the rank and file, you're inconsequential. I know it's a harsh thing to say, I'm not saying that only the executive team is so great. I'm not saying that. But like if let's say you're a developer on the Spotify team. You're just part of the team, but you're one of these SJW warriors. You're going to fight this thing. You're going to make a lot of noise. You're going to start getting petitions signed. I'm sorry, you're a developer. You can be replaced. There are thousands of developers happy to take your job. On the other hand, if you're a talent like Joe Rogan... I don't mean to say that if you're a talent like Joe, you should be able to do whatever you want. I don't think that Joe should do things that are truly immoral. I don't, like, like you know, we're going we're gonna to just denigrate a whole race of people online or we're just going to make fun of them. We're going to, you know, encourage violence or whatever. But, but Alex Jones is harmless. Speech is not violence, people. Speech is not violence. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I'm watching this closely because I think that this is gonna decide things. If they capitulate, if they eventually allow the smaller people in that organization to drive uh, company culture, company policy, and what the talent can and can't say, it's done. If, if, they, uh, if they start handcuffing Rogan, it's done. They just can't do it. And for Rogan to be successful, he shouldn't dial it back. He's gotta have controversial people on. And it, and that it should be equal opportunity controversial. He should get Bernie Sanders on there. He should get Alex Jones on there. Not that Bernie's that controversial, but get people on there that are controversial on both sides. Engage those people on all the sides. All kinds of topics. I think that's what Joe's really good at. So it would be interesting to see what happens there. Let's just take a look at some of the, um, let's see what uh, some of the comments. George says that uh, Daniela Eck, Spotify CEO, doesn't care about the complaints from the, quote, kids or staff, he says in parentheses. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing too. I'm hearing that they're holding firm, but I'm telling you, if the pressure continues and they capitulate, it's going to be a sad day for everybody because uh, we really need these companies to hold the line and just say, hey, look, you're not, you're not the mom and dad of this family. You're one of the children. I know that's very paternalistic. Mike, how could you? How could you be so paternalistic? I, well, I don't know. How could I be? But let's look at the facts. I mean, the facts are, The proletariat isn't running the company. The bourgeoisie is. (laughs) Oh, guys, I'm just having a little bit of fun. But the fact of the matter really is the the people, the staff members, are not running the company. This isn't a democracy. This isn't uh, some type of um, co-op where all of them have a stake in the company and they get to vote on what happens. They're employees, Now, if if Spotify has a company culture, like, look, all of our employees vote on things, all of our employees have to agree with things, that's different. But I don't think that that's the case. And so there has to be a firm line between who gets to say what. I think the employees, they want to complain about it, that's fine. They have a free... Uh, right to complain. But then I think Spotify, executives and leadership also has the right to say, you know, I don't know that you're a good fit for us. Uh, We wish you the best. We want the best for you, but you're done. Your services are no longer needed and they should move on. Now, if if the executives are looking at Joe and saying we're really having uh, qualms with the things that Joe is saying, and I, I don't think anybody's really arguing that Joe's gone off the rails. Let's say Joe goes off the rails. Okay, that's a different discussion. Having Alex Jones on your show is not going off the rails. Alex Jones is a highly um, visible, well-known, controversial figure. He's not calling for anything evil, wicked, or or, or especially immoral. Uh, have him on. Have a fun time. Push him around a little bit. Let him push you back and get the ratings and get the hell out and get your next show on. I mean, what's so hard about that But for some reason? Uh, they're having a hard time. Doughboy Biscuit says, Spotify will eventually screw Joe Rogan over just a gut feeling. Alex Jones is crazy, but he's entertaining. He, But that's it. He is entertaining. He's crazy and he's entertaining. And what makes him entertaining is the fact that he's crazy. And he knows that. That's a persona. When he takes his shirt off, you know, you got a guy in his 50s ripping his shirt off and then running around screaming and, ah! I mean... It's a spectacle. It's entertaining. It's nuts. He knows that. He's calculated. He's smart. Yeah. Is he? Is he a good person? I don't know. I've never met Alex Jones. Do I like all the stuff that he talks about? No. Do Do I have a problem with all? You know, he's he's pimping vitamins all the time. He's he's a he's a shuckster. Uh, he's a shyster. He's a huckster. A shuckster. That's a shyster and a huckster. You heard it here, folks. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> now the last podcast. I had a drink with me. I'm like, I'll have a drink. I was like, you know, I didn't really feel comfortable doing that. I felt self-conscious. I enjoy a drink. But I thought, I don't know if drinking on the show is my thing, right? We just try different things. But here I can't speak. I just want to let you know, I have not had a drink today, (laughs) even though I can't get my words right. So uh, let's see. Pauline says, I feel like Alex Jones is just a litmus test at this point for how much controversy a platform can handle. Uh, uh, Pauline, I think you are saying exactly what I was trying to communicate. And and I love the phrase litmus test. That's exactly what I'm getting at. And I think this is why it's so important for them to hold tight. Spotify is the canary in the coal mine, she asked. Yeah, I think it is. I think if Spotify capitulates, I mean, look, we've already had a number of platforms aggressively and proactively deplatforming, silencing, shadow banning individuals. Look at this whole Hunter Biden story. The whole Hunter Biden story got buried uh, you know, like Twitter just decided the public doesn't need to know. Oh, we've just decided it's fake. It's, it's not fake. I mean, here's the problem. It's not fake. I've looked at the photos. I've watched the videos. And it's not fake. It's just not fake. Now, what we don't know is like the connections and so on. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say like, oh, it's just proven that Joe Biden uh, was the mastermind behind all this. I think that Joe Biden's hands are dirty. Uh, I think he's involved in all this. But, you know, you've got these platforms shutting down individuals and even other big news platforms just because they don't like the content. And I think, you know, this, so, so we're already seeing this kind of culture. It's, it's well ingrained. This is not like a new thing. But I think if Spotify capitulates, I think if they are able to take, if the SJWs can take Joe down, it just, it's going to have a chilling effect. It's going to show that nobody, nobody is safe. You can never be so too big to fail. You can never be bulletproof in this culture that we're in. And I think Joe's getting bigger and bigger and he's just got a huge target. They're gunning for him. This isn't that they were minding their own business and they were upset about Alex Jones. They are trying to take Joe Rogan down, not because he's a conservative, not because he's right wing, because Joe actually isn't. He's a self-advowed, a self-confessed liberal. They're trying to take him down because he embraces freedom of speech and freedom of expression and freedom of thought. Joe's willing to engage anybody. He doesn't hate anybody. He's willing to engage them. He's willing to let them speak their ideas and he's willing to hash those ideas out. And I think that's the problem. They don't like this. You see, the, the true, the, the hyper progressive vision doesn't work in a world where people have the ability to speak their mind. And so I think Rogan's got a big target. You watch. This is, gonna, this is just going to continue on. There's going to have to be, I don't think Spotify is going to be able to fix this thing by just telling the kids, quote unquote, to settle down, by telling the staff that, hey, look, not going to do it. They're going to have to make some management and staffing decisions. They're going to have to eliminate people. They're just going to say, hey, look, we love these people, yada, yada, but we clearly were not meant for each other. We, we encourage them to go find another place. We wish them the best. We, we look forward to seeing their successful you know, life, et cetera. I just think that Spotify is going to have to do more than just make public statements They're going to have to bring down the boom on these employees and get rid of them. George says Alex should be back on the JRE on the JRE on election night. Yeah, that would be something, wouldn't it? And then Mike Riddler. Hey, welcome, Mike. Mike says if Spotify really goes after Rogan, he's one of the few people that could just start their own podcast distribution platform and be successful tomorrow. Mike, that's a fascinating comment. Uh, Mike Ridler with a, with a really insightful comment that 's a good point i I agree with you as i 'm listening to this th- and thinking about it 's like yeah joe 's got enough he 's got enough volume to do it now there 's a whole side to this, like servers there 's a technology side that boggles the mind, uh, but I would also think that he 's got the money. you would think that Joe has got the resources, and you would think that a lot of people would come to joe 's aid you know I know that um, I know that Jordan Peterson and some others set up a separate platform uh, when, when people were being deplatformed from the intellectual dark web. I know there have been some uh, attempts to do this. So it would be interesting to see, uh, you're right, if, if that actually happened. You know, and Joe could probably take them to court. I don't know what his contract looks like, but if they if they ended up kind of... Pulling the rug out. I mean, he could walk away with a lot of money in his pocket, and I bet he could get venture money as well. There's venture money out there. In fact, Peter Thiel. uh, Peter Thiel would be, or is it Thiel? I don't know. I think it's Thiel. Peter Thiel would be all over that. You would think with his money, relatively, you know, conservative guy, not hyper conservative, but he's he's kind of conservative. He's got, um, is it Eric Weinstein? Yeah, I think it's Eric Weinstein. Is his kind of number two guy? Who again? This is—I I would say Peter Thiel and Eric Weinstein are classical liberals. They're liberals in the in the libertarian classical sense, post enlightenment, uh, not conservatives like uh, old school conservatives. Pauline says maybe Microsoft tried to sell phones as well. How'd that go? Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. So anyway, really interesting stuff. Hey, let's move on. You know, along along the lines of things changing, we've got—I'm uh, I'm living here in New York State. I'm in the Big Apple, uh, not in the Big Apple city. Sorry, I should I should rephrase it. I'm in the Empire State, not in the Big Apple. Boy, we're having trouble talking today, kids. Uh, for what for what I make doing this podcast, you'd think I'd bring a little bit more to the table. <laughs> but I, I want to uh, just talk a little bit, you know, the whole COVID thing. So we've got countries like France and Germany lock, locking down. There's lots of talk of having a lockdown. And Governor Cuomo came out yesterday, Saturday, uh, unprecedented announcement saying... Yeah, we're shutting the state down, essentially. Now, he's not locking it down, but what he's saying is if you're coming into New York State from another state, now, there are three exceptions that are, that are on our border, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Connecticut. Those border New York State. Now, there's some other states that border us, by the way. We we border Massachusetts, Vermont. We touch some other states. I think we touch Vermont. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, but, but Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Connecticut, very tied to New York, New York City, and and Philly and all like there's a lot of um, a lot of back and forth commerce and so on but any other state if you're coming in from any other state you have to present uh, a COVID test that shows that you're COVID free and it has to be like within three days or something if you don't have one you have to take a test immediately uh, you've got to then be sequestered for three days until the results come back if the results are clear you're welcome to go about your business in New York State Uh, If the results are not good, then you have to, you've got to do the 14-day quarantine and keep testing until you're clear. Uh, If you refuse to take a test, you will be forced to quarantine for 14 days. So they're really locking down. This can be problematic uh, for people that travel. I mean, New York is one of these states that people come in and out of for business quite a bit. I I actually last week was in Pennsylvania for the week. I I go back and forth pretty often. I'm not flying, I'm driving. So I'm curious to see how they're going to do this I take pretty major arteries so uh, you know are they going to have a stop station you know you're gonna have to show your papers at the border Very curious to see what this is going to look like in implementation. I was talking to a buddy about a two weeks ago who has a property down in Florida. He goes back and forth to that property from time to time, not a lot, but a few months ago he was there, came back and when he came into New York City, he flew up of course uh, you know there was like a girl at a at a foldout. Table with uh, sitting on her iPhone distracted. She's the one supposed to be tracking people in and out. Didn't seem like it was that rigorous. But he said this last time, he just came back a couple of weeks ago, and the National Guard was at the airport in little Rochester, New York. So, you know, you're looking at um, a tighter and tighter clampdown of the movement, the restriction of the movement of the people of New York State and people that want to visit that state. Now, if you're not from the States, uh, one thing that's interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of countries are smaller outside the United, United States, don't have as much geography. And you, you might think of states as little countries. It's not the same. We, we've had freedom of travel. These It's the United States. There's freedom of commerce, freedom of travel. You can go about your business. You don't need to show anything. There are no borders where you have to stop and check in from state to state. You just do your thing. So, uh, yeah, you could say, hey, look, Mike, it's COVID. These are um, extraordinary times Call for extraordinary measures. My point here just being it's unprecedented. This just never happened before in the history of this uh, country and in the state. So something to keep your eye on. I don't have any big, big commentary. I don't like it. Got to be quite honest. I don't like it at all. Um, I'm concerned about where this takes us. uh, What's the threshold? You know, the, the, uh, the fatality rate with COVID way, way down from the early days because we're testing more. A lot of the tests are really unreliable. We're, we're cycling. The, these tests are running very high cycles. They're getting lots of false positives. Even Dr. Fauci said uh, back a while ago, hey, you only need to cycle 35 times. Anything more than that, you're going to get dead nucleides and all these nucleotides and all this stuff. Give you false positives. We're cycling in 30s, 40, 47 cycles. I mean, we're just getting lots of bad data out of these tests, but we're clamping down. Based on what I think is bad data in a, a disease that's real, it's a real disease, uh, but it's not killing people like, like they're telling us. We have a spike in cases, and that could be a couple things. It could be false pauses from tests, it could also be, um, you know, you, you could have an asymptomatic case. Someone could have, just like I've got the chickenpox virus in my bloodstream. I had chickenpox when I was 13, I'll carry that in my bloodstream forever. If you test me for chickenpox, I'm going to show positive right now. And so when we talk about cases versus infections, it's a little different. And um, anyway, oh, Pauline says she has to go. Pauline, thanks for joining us. Uh, appreciate you being part of the stream. Yeah, all the best for the week. But yeah, so it's a little concerning to see this kind of clamp down. I know uh, George actually says, um, you know, we're back on full lockdown here in Austria, Germany, et cetera. Yeah, it's tough. And, uh, you know, I do question... Um, I do question, uh, the severity of, of the real situation. Now I understand there's some real numbers out there, but numbers, you know, statistics can be misleading. And that's a thing to keep in mind. If you're one of these folks listening, you're like, Hey Mike, you don't understand the numbers are bad. I, I get it. I, but you just keep in mind that statistics and numbers can be misleading and it takes a bit of effort. It takes a bit of thought to dig down, uh, to really understand what the numbers are telling us. And, and let's be honest. Most of us aren't doing that kind of digging. Most of us are not doing that kind of digging. And If you are, often you're doing that kind of digging to prove your own point to yourself, to make yourself feel better because there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance and you're looking for something, uh, so you've got a cognitive bias. You're looking for something to take away that feeling of dissonance. I just encourage you to, to, to think about that. Take a look at the real numbers and what do they really mean? You know, how much at risk are you of, of dying from COVID-19? It's, it's really super low. Uh, Quite interesting. So very, very interesting thing. Um, I'm just going to go back. George had a comment about the Alex uh, Jones interview. He said, the really crazy thing on this podcast, Alex Jones was less talking shit than Rachel Maddow does every day on MSNBC. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, Maddow's she's in crazy town once in a while. I mean, she gets herself. And and again, you know, this is a shtick. These people do this because they know it sells Advertising it it draws the eyeballs, but you know Maddow's uh, not never going to be accused of of uh, not letting a good opportunity get everything all ginned up. I remember her the big reveal, you know, like I remember when Trump first won, and that's going to segue into our last topic here. When Trump first won, you know, her in tears about the republic and the democracy, not so much the republic, the democracy, and and just so upset and just tears and tears. And we're going to get the tax you know the tax returns oh my god we got them i mean she did such a huge she did such a huge uh dramatic i'm going to release them and it was a big nothing burger she had nothing so yeah that the drama uh is something to behold with all these folks well, a couple more um uh pauline sales uh, alberta canada is mostly open for now that she said that before she had to bounce That's good to hear. I hope that stays the case. And Mike Riddler says, I had a statistics teacher in college that said, give me enough stats and I can both prove and disprove almost anything. And that's it, Mike. I mean, that's 100%. Anybody that even took basic statistics in college knows. I mean, statistics can be really misleading and it just depends how they're used. And, you know, a lot of reporting these days, a lot of journalists... They're not taking the statistics, breaking them down, really trying to help the public understand them. They grab the statistics just to scare the crap out of you. They grab the statistics to rattle our cages. They grab the statistics to prove their point. You know, what used to be journalism, which is I want to help you understand the truth of what's going on and report to you because you can't be there. I'm going to report to you, you know, whatever's going on, whatever the situation is. You know, now it's become, I have a narrative that I'm pushing. I, I have a vision of society that that I want to see come into fruition. And I'm going to use my position as a media person to drive that narrative and get you to think in ways that I want you to think. Now, I remember early days of this virus, uh, journalists coming right out and saying, like, even with me and Twitter, I was going back and forth. And they're like, I want to scare people because I was saying, hey, you're just scaring. no. It's my job to scare people because in their mind, if I don't scare you, you're not going to take this seriously and you'll die. We're all going to die. So the way that we're going to save society is to scare the crap out of everybody. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, that's, that's, uh, that's wrong. <laughs> you need to respect people's autonomy. They're not an ends to your mean. Uh, they, they're not a means to your end. I'm sorry. They, you don't get to scare them just to save society. You have to be honest with people and let them make good decisions based on that. So yeah, statistics can be a little tricky, but there's something about a statistic that just makes us feel like, oh, it's gotta be true. It's gotta be real. It's amazing to me sitting in, you know, business meetings with clients, client staff, et cetera, and someone will throw a statistic out and it's like, it's just taking like, oh, okay, well, if 10%, well, then that, like there's rarely discussion, the really good ones and I actually was in a meeting last week where it was good because there were some numbers on the table and that team is a savvy team. They said, okay, but let's pick these numbers apart a little bit, what do these numbers mean? Now the average gang that, you know, would look at those numbers and go, oh, great. You know, we're making so much profit. Let's, let's, it's great, let's move on. This team was savvy. They said, let's pick these apart a little bit. And when they picked them apart, the numbers really weren't saying what one would think they were saying. It's rare that people do that. It's rare that people do that. So, hey, uh, New York shutting down, Europe shutting down, the rest of the world shutting down. Take some time and think about the reality of the situation. Dig into those statistics a little bit. Now, as we wrap up the show, I want to just take a few minutes and talk about a what-if And that is the election. What if Donald Trump actually won this election? Now, I was a Trump voter uh, in 2016. I was a reluctant Trump voter. I didn't really care for him. I didn't like his style. I didn't like his attitude. I didn't like kind of his backstory. Uh, I was never like crazy about Trump. I always thought he was a bit of a shyster. I always thought he was a bit of a... A fraud, and what I mean by fraud is—I mean, I knew that Trump was successful, but I also knew that he'd gone through a number of bankruptcies, and I knew that he was—he—he uh, he was a PR man. He knew how to get PR. He knew how to kind of spin a story, spin his personality. I just thought Trump was always savvy at kind of making us all think he was this multi 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 billionaire oh it's just one of the biggest guys in the world is donald trump you know he wrote a book uh the art of the deal he'd get himself on tv shows he was just that kind of this new york city real estate tycoon and he just had a persona and to me it was just a shtick i mean i i believe that he was successful don't get me wrong i'm not saying like i think you know i thought trump was making a hundred thousand a year and trying to figure out how to punch above his weight. I think the guy was wealthy and successful, but I always thought he was a bit of a showman. And so when he got the nomination, I just, I said, I'm going to vote for him, pulling the trigger for Trump because th- there's no way in hell I'm getting on the, on the Hillary Clinton train. I mean, they just talk about political corruption and a distasteful person, et cetera. So I was thrilled when Trump won more so to see Hillary lose. Uh, but for me, a vote for Trump was really a vote against Hillary Clinton. That's all it really was. And I was pleasantly surprised to see the kind of uh, things that Trump tackled in his administration. Now, you can be, I get it. Like, a lot of people hate Trump, still do. A lot of my listeners are not Trump fans. I get it. I've never, like, drunk the Trump Kool-Aid. But on the other hand, there's some things about Trump that I really respect, some things he's done that I, that I respect. And things that his administration has done that I expect, things, respect, things that they've tried to do that I thought, you know, pulling out of the Paris Accord. I thought that was phenomenal. I think, you know, telling Iran to go sit and spin. I thought that was great. I mean, getting on that Iran nuclear deal, it was a terrible deal, you know, putting the uh, embassy in, the American embassy in Jerusalem. I thought it was phenomenal. You know, actually prison reform, uh, creating an economy that gave uh, Latino and, and black people the best opportunities they've ever had in the history of this country. I I thought it was all good. Like those were good things. I thought they accomplished some good things. Now, you know, we had, um, uh, we had somebody on the show. His name is Tom Hofling. a few, few weeks ago. He's, he's running for office. He understands. He said, look, I understand. I'm not going to win. This guy's an evangelical Christian. And he's saying Trump is so distasteful and he has no intention of, of rectifying America's biggest evil, which is, uh, in Tom's mind, abortion. And I, and I have a hard time arguing with that. I think abortion's a horrible thing. But putting that aside, you have some people out there saying, Trump is so distasteful that I, that I can't vote for him. Doesn't matter, I'm, I'm a right-wing Christian, etc., but he's so immoral, etc., I just can't vote for him. And the other thing is, he's really not doing what he said he's going to do, and I get that. But putting that aside, putting these other candidates aside, at the end of the day, we've got Joe Biden, and we've got Donald Trump. And I want to talk for a moment about what if Trump wins, because for the last few months, it's been looking like more and more Trump is not going to win this election. He's been falling in the polls, to the point where he's significantly behind Joe. The first election or sorry, the first um, the first uh, uh, debate. Thank you. The first debate uh, was Was a nightmare. Trump really failed in that. He came out. He was belligerent. He was sweaty. He seemed angry, stressed out, just hostile. He he really choked. He had an opportunity to show the world and American people who he who he could be, his potential, and he really choked. And and come to find out, you know, he came down with COVID a couple days later. It was probably incubating. He's probably miserable. I'm not making an excuse, but in the eyes of the American people, he failed in that in that um, debate. And I think. Joe Biden started to ascend even more. Then Trump gets COVID. That's controversial. And Trump was really losing steam, really losing steam. I'm sitting here today. I, I actually like a few couple weeks weeks. I'm like, I've seen the people I, I talked to. I'm like, I don't think Trump's going to win. I just don't think he's got it. And a lot of people are like, oh, the polls are a mess. They're not telling the truth and the liberals and the media. Blah, blah. But I'm like, yeah, but you know what? Trump has failed to make his case for his vision this time around. He's failed to make his case. Uh, He has failed to, you know, kind of capture the American people with his vision for the future. And that's one of the things that I think he did really well the first time around is he had a vision. A lot of people found it dark and scary and so on. But but he did a good job of communicating his vision and capturing the imaginations of a bunch of people in this country that felt left behind, that felt like they weren't welcome in their own country anymore, that felt like they were the villains in this this play that was going on that they didn't even like, what did I ever do wrong? I love my country. I, I work hard. I drink a beer. I watch a football game. Like, why am I the bad guy all of a sudden? Why am I a deplorable? And Trump captured those people's imaginations. He said, look, I'm going to make sure that your coal mines are working. I'm going to make sure your factory jobs come back. I'm going to make sure that you can you know, put your kids through school and that they're going to have opportunity and that we're going to keep out uh, the, the illegal people here that are stealing your jobs and making your streets unsafe. That's a thing. You can say, oh, that's racist. And But at the end of the day, most people want to feel safe. Most people want to be able to work a good job. Most people don't want cheaters and uh, line skippers and and leeches if you want and it's horrible taking from them that's how people see it you know you're you're standing in line to to uh to get a cup of coffee now these days let's say you're standing in line to go in a grocery store because we got the covids so you can't just go into a grocery store so you're standing in line to go in the grocery store it's a long line you're all masked up you got your recyclable bags i mean you're just a good citizen aren't you and then along comes some lady. She just comes strolling up. She just cuts in the front of the line. You've been sitting there for 20 minutes in the rain or the cold or the hot sun. She just strolls up. You Now they half an hour. She just walks right in. That makes you upset, doesn't it? It's the rare person that goes, oh, well, that woman must have had a good reason to go in front of me. I mean, that woman must have a really good reason to go in front of me. I, I really don't have a right to expect that since I've been standing in line all this time, I should be moving forward, not someone that just came out of nowhere and cut. And that's how the American labor, the blue-collar person, the middle, lower, middle-class people, that's how they felt about illegal immigrants. Not about legal immigrants. I'm married to a legal immigrant. It's the illegal immigration. It's the line-cutting. It's the taking resources from those that they're supposed to be for. I think Trump really struck a nerve there. You can call these people racists and some bigots and so on. But at the end of the day, people just want what's fair. I think most Americans are like, hey, look, you know, I, I like immigrants. We're a country of immigrants. My family, they were Germans came over. My family, Irish, Italians, they came off the boat. We still eat of the pasta, <laughs> the spaghetti. I don't think we're a hostile country to, to immigrants. We are immigrants in this country. But people resonated with Trump's promise to stop the unfair line cutting, essentially. Fast forward to today. I don't think Trump has made a good case for his vision, but I think over the last couple of weeks something has happened. I think I think something has happened, and I almost think that Trump is going to win again. I think there has been such a concerted effort to make sure that Joe Biden wins. I think the media has been all in for Joe Biden. I think you know public personalities have been all in for Joe Biden. I mean it. Everybody's been so in for Joe Biden that I think the American people are saying, well, hold on a second. Again, you're not telling me the truth. I think that the Hunter Biden story, for as much as it's being suppressed, is catching on with people. I think the actual suppression of that story is making people that found Trump distasteful more acceptable I think, I think there's been a, 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 a misstep here. And so what I'm, I'm, you know, I'll go on record saying this, I'm not making a big prediction, but I think that Trump might win this. I mean, how's that for qualifying? I think come Tuesday, uh, we're not going well to know. I think it's going to take a while to know. I think it's going to be hotly contested. I think it's going to, you know, there's going to be a, a flanks of, uh, of attorneys and so on. It's going to be a battle. And I understand that but but. I asked the question, what does a Trump victory mean? So assuming that Trump wins, what does a Trump victory mean? Here's here's why I asked that question. I think a Trump victory means that the little guy can win over the big corporation, that, that that there's still hope. And Trump is not the little guy. Trump is not the little guy. But here's why I say this. There's been a concerted effort over the last number of months and weeks to shield Joe Biden, to prop Joe Biden up, to protect Joe Biden. He spent most of his time in the basement. I know he's been touring a little bit. Any media coverage has been very, very um, kind to Joe, very kind to Joe and hypercritical of Trump. You're looking at, it's just the gloves are off. It's not like anybody's hiding it. And I know, oh, Fox News is conservative. Okay, that's one network. And they're throwing red meat to their audience, big deal. But you look across the media spectrum, you look across the celebrity spectrum, everybody's in hard for Joe, and they've been really kind to him. Even the questions in the debates, you know, softball, you look at the two town halls. I mean, Trump was like grilled as if he was a prisoner of war for the enemy. Whereas Joe Biden, it was like, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's get our s'mores and hot chocolate and have a chit chat, him and Stephanopoulos. This is not because I'm right-wing and I think it's unfair. I think anybody, if if you're honest, if you're on the left and you're honest, you go, you know, Joe has had a pretty easy time of it. He hasn't had to raise to the bar that Trump has had to raise to. Now, Trump's an incumbent. It's a pretty bad year right now. Trump's got a lot to answer for. so no question there. But I think that if Trump wins, I think it shows that it's possible for the outsider to overcome the machine. It's possible for the outsider, it's possible for the average American to have a champion that can overcome the machine, the machine being the media, the political status quo, the the uh, celebrity world, I mean, that's part of the media. Every, every institution is driving really hard to make sure that Joe Biden wins and that Donald Trump loses. It'll be very interesting to see what happens here. I'm not guaranteeing you that Trump is gonna win, but for the first time this week and last week, I'm actually at a place where I'm like, you know, I actually think that Trump could pull this thing out. For a while, I was thinking he's lost it. but I think it's looking much better for him. And if he does, I think it's going to be a very interesting statement because you can't argue. I don't think anyone can argue that social media platforms, uh, the, 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 the mainstream media, the entertainment industry, the political uh, uh, um, institutions, the educational institutions the churches and so on, they've really, really thrown everything they have at Donald Trump. And I think if he wins, that's going to be a huge statement that there's something deeper going on in this country. There's something else that the majority of people here want. Now, if he loses, then hey, he lost. And uh, if he loses, then he loses on his own terms, because quite frankly, he's been mean SOB in a lot of ways and and uh, and I think he's kinda had to be but he relishes it. He likes to fight. And if you lose then then you didn't capture the American uh the imagination of the American people. You didn't give them something to hope for. You didn't give them a reason to believe in you. Not enough of them. And uh yeah so that's that. Let's look at a couple comments here. Doughboy said I voted for Trump in two thousand sixteen too. I used to be a hardcore Trump supporter. Uh, he continues. If Trump wins again, it'll be the greatest thing that could happen to the Democrats. Trump has been more successful passing more leftist crap than the Democrats. Doughboy, I, I appreciate that you're saying that. I get that you're a Tom Hofling uh, supporter. I get all that. I, I have to disagree. I, I, you know, I look at George Bush, like George W. Bush, uh, you know, last Republican before Trump. He, he passed a lot of kind of leftist stuff. He passed, he spent tons of money. So, like, I understand that kind of sentiment. I'm not going to sit here and tell you, oh, Trump's so conservative. He's more of a populist, I think. I think he's got some conservative people around him. He, Trump's a populist. And I think he's happy to spend money like a drunken sailor. He's happy to take away liberties if he has to. I'm, I'm not saying that Trump is this real conservative, I'm not going to defend that. But to say that, that Trump's passed more uh, leftist crap than the Democrats, golly, I mean, where were you during the Obama, the eight years of the Obama administration? I mean, I, I don't know how you can say that with a straight face. Now, I appreciate, again, that you're a Tom Hoefling supporter, and I understand Tom's position on some of this stuff. I get it. Uh, but I just can't agree. I just can't agree with that. I just think that. that I think that statement, I'm going to be tough on you here, but it's tough love. I love you, man. But I think that statement is kind of the, it's one of those bombastic Trump-like statements. It's like, oh, you know, he's worse than a Democrat. Come on. Really? How are you going to prove, how are you going to defend that statement? You got you to work hard in that, bro. <laughs> uh, and then Doughboy says, he continues, I think Trump supporters can ruin Trump's chances of winning. I'd be curious what you mean by that. Trump supporters can ruin Trump's chances of winning. I'm not sure what you're talking about there, but okay. George says Trump is a talker, not a doer. That's, that's true, right? He is a talker. Uh, although, George, I, you know, I, I was talking to someone last week, and they're like, Trump tries to take credit for all this stuff, uh, blah, blah, blah. And he's, he's a talker. He's something similar to how much he talks. But I said, you know, look at, look at a business. If the, someone owns a company, you would say, hey, that guy or that gal grew that company by, you know, he tripled the size of the company, took it public, blah, blah, blah. We, we give that person credit. But when we say that, we know that that person assembled a team. We know that he had managers. We know that, that she may have had you know, finance come. Like She was the smart one, but she didn't do it all. He didn't do it all. We know that there's a team, that there are other people. And I think that's the same with Trump. I mean, Trump's job is to set a vision, et cetera, kind of you know rally the troops. And it's an especially contentious world that we live in. I think that Trump's been successful because he understood... The power of the bully pulpit, and how important that is, and he 's used it to his advantage in ways that others haven 't been able to do. Republicans have been almost too polite um, in in the old in the old days and I think Trump set a new model it 's not necessarily a good model, but you know republicanism his, like classical republicanism, not just American Republican party, but like classical republicanism, this idea of of setting up a republic uh, the French tried a republic It wasn 't quite a classical under Rousseau. Uh, that was not a classical republic, but it's contentious. It's it's civic debate. It's it's vigorous. It's aggressive. It's it's you know the glory is is fought and won in the public sphere of uh, civic debate and in beating your enemies. It's expected that it's a it's a bare knuckle fight. That's republicanism, and uh, Trump embodies that in a way maybe distasteful to us, uh, but but there's something you know good about being a little bit raw. I, th- I think. Sometimes taking off the mask is not a bad thing. You know, you get these polished politicians that make us feel good about ourselves, but we don't really know what kind of people they are. We don't know what they're doing behind the scenes just because they're soothing us, making us feel more secure, making us feel good about ourselves. And there's something to be said for that. You know, I like when a, when a politician kind of rises and helps the people rise to a higher level, make us, make us uh, believe better in ourselves, make us behave better. That's great. But there's another element of there's a lot of lot of disgusting, distasteful, immoral stuff that happens behind closed doors. And it might be better to take the masks off and have real knock down uh, dust ups, drag them out, knock them down dust ups to figure things out. Uh, George says Obama was much more a Wall Street guy than a lefty boy, George, you're on that. I, I, a lot of people don't understand that, but he was more tied to high finance. And I've been doing some research. I. I want to write an essay but i've kind of come to understand that that the leftists and finance are closer related than people understand people think oh capitalism conservatism right wing but you know lefty progressivism socialism anti all that that's not necessarily true they're tied closer in ways that people wouldn't expect and uh, often you see on the progressive left and the democrats they're often tied to the financial world much closer Whereas the Republicans and Demo- the Republicans and conservatives tend to be more about small privately owned businesses. You tend to think of the left as the, the party of the people. But in America, it's really about the giant publicly traded corporations, the giant, you know, too big to fail AIG, we got to protect them and keep them in the big finance, banking, money. And then you've got on the Republican side, this is more about free enterprise. Not always, but free enterprise. It's a small business owner. When I say small business owner, you might, you might own a business that's $200 million a year. That's still, it's a medium-sized business, it's not a big business. You could privately own that. You could employ a bunch of people. You could live a really good life. You're not up there in the stratosphere with the Jeff Bezos of the world. The Jeff Bezos and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, they're left-leaning guys, they're on the side of the left, high finance, big money. That's, that's progressivism in, in a big way. Uh, so, so it's interesting how that kind of stuff plays out. Doughboy says, uh, more spending under Trump in the first term, $7 trillion, More abortions under Trump than, than any year under Obama. More illegals uh, than any year under Obama a jailbreak bill under Trump, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so there's a few things, right? Uh, I understand Tom Hofling's position that he just sent out the troops and shut down the clinics. Uh, but for most politicians, they're not going to do that. You know, how does how is Trump responsible for more abortions? What did he do to drive more abortions? Also, what did Trump do to drive more illegals into the country? Like, I understand you're going to lay these at his feet, and I, and I don't want to fight you. I mean, look, I, I get it. Um, but my point is, like, how is that on Trump's Shoulders. When I look at the Obama administration, I'm not going to point fingers at him because that's like saying Obama sold more guns than than any other president, which is true. He was such a liberal that lots of people ran out and bought guns. Is he responsible for that? Is that like, do the lefties go, we're mad at Obama because he drove more gun sales? No, they don't blame Obama for that. Although he was instrumental in driving that stuff, but he didn't have policies on that. I look at Obamacare. I look at the Paris Accord. I look at the Iran deal. I mean, those are things that Obama actively did. i hold him accountable for that. But, you know, look, your points are well taken. I'm not going to sit and say you're 100% wrong. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to say, hey, I'd like to, I'd like to hold Trump accountable for the things that he, the policies he put in place. Or the policies that he failed to put into place. Or the policies that he should not have put in place, but he did, et cetera, et cetera. So George agrees, though. He says, hey, Doughboy's got a point on that. No problem. Then he says, Doughboy, then Trump supporters cheer all of it, which could cause other people to turn away from Trump. But Trump could find, could find sign more bills. They give more PP, more money, and his supporters will cheer. Oh, wait. Yeah, and I, I'm with you on that. Like the whole spending like a drunken sailor, I don't like that. And what I don't like is we're not talking about how we're going to pay for this later. It's just like, let's just keep spending and spending. I, and, and the thing that bothers me, where I will agree with you, Doughboy, I don't know if you agree with this point, What's bothered me about uh, Trump when, the, when he's pressed in some of these debates about the, the, the relief money, you know, oh, the relief money, why can't, blah, blah, blah. Trump, what he should be coming back and saying is, look, we wouldn't need the relief money if we'd let the American people go back to work. Americans know how to create wealth. Americans are smart, hardworking, wealth-creating people. We're the, we're the pinnacle of the, of the world in, in free markets and create wealth creation. Like if he had come back and said, look, I'm all for bailing people out. I'm all for giving people a bridge. But what we're doing is we're making it impossible for people to do what they want to do. They don't want our PPE. Is it PPE? No, that's the equipment. PPP money. What they want is the right and the ability and the freedom to conduct business. Let these people go back to their jobs. Let business owners reopen. Let them conduct business freely. Stop. Shutting us down. Let people figure out how to make this work for themselves. Let's stop scaring people. You know, like like let the American people do what they're good at. If Trump had said that, I think that would have been a winner. So I guess I have to agree with you there. Uh, again, I said it earlier. He's not a conservative. He's a populist, and a populist is gonna spend money because that's popular. Yeah, that's popular. George says, the real left hates Obama. I agree with you. In fact, I, one of my employees when Obama was in office, lovely guy, such a talented artist, just a, a wonderful human being. And what a blessing to me. This guy, just very gracious uh, heart, very caring, um, just a wonderful man. But he was a hardcore leftist. And he, he complained, like he wouldn't gripe about it. But if you asked him, he'd say, yeah, Obama's not left enough. And a lot of people on the right were like, oh, my gosh, Obama's like the great Satan. He's like the leftist antichrist. You know, oh, he's going to. Uh, and then a lot of liberals were like, finally, we got a guy that we love, you know, a lefty in there that's going to be great. And he did a lot of left-leaning stuff. But for this employee, a lovely man, but boy, he just like Obama isn't left-leaning enough. I wish, uh, you know, he was very disappointed and frustrated with Obama. I think he liked the fact that Obama was the first black president that was historic, et cetera. But very disappointed. Tell you what, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna wrap up the show here, but I'm gonna stay online and chit chat with you fine folks on the live stream. But I gotta tell you guys, this has been a great discussion. I appreciate everyone's input. I hope that uh, as we move into Tuesday, you guys are listening to this either before or after the polls. I hope that you're able to exercise your right to franchise here in America. I hope that you uh, are grateful for the things that we have. And quite frankly, I think either way this goes, whether Trump wins, whether Joe Biden wins, I think the key is to be focused on the life that you have, be focused on the responsibilities that you have, the people around you. I'm not saying to to drop out of politics and not be politically active, be active. Uh, But the way that we make this country a great country isn't by the person that we put into the Oval Office. That person can have a huge impact on the quality of life, the direction of the country. I think we need to fight for our freedoms. I think we need to fight to have the right to speak our minds, to be free people, to have liberty to engage each other in ways that are productive and and good. Uh, But on the other hand, you and I can't control the universe, but we can control the world around us. If you have people in your life Give them a hug, tell them that you love them, do things for those that you care about. Work hard, produce, create wealth as best as you can. Save for the future. Be generous and help others in need. Be a good neighbor. These are the kinds of things, I mean they sound silly, it sounds trite, but think about countries, a country with with you know 10 million people in a country. If if those 10 million people behave that way, what would that country look like? And so, uh, you know, as we're entering into this really divided world, this divided dark time, this time of struggle, I just want to encourage you guys to not lose sight of the fact that love is a powerful force. Not, not TV love, not uh, slogan political love. I'm just talking about being a good neighbor. be You know, your fellow man. Be kind to one another. And I want to let you guys know, as I always do, that I love you all. I love you all. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. I look forward to hanging out with you guys in the next episode. And until then, be good.